This is Plucked. Stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. This is Woody Guthrie in 1940 singing I Ain't Got No Home. It's a lament about the alienation poor agriculturalists feel in a society designed to benefit the rich. Woody eventually came to realize that this kind of alienation can also result from racism. And so, in 1954, he wrote new words for the old melody. This is Beach Haven Ain't My Home, as performed by Ryan Harvey, featuring Annie DeFranco and Tom Morello. I'm playing you their version because Woody himself never recorded Beach Haven Ain't My Home. Instead, the lyrics were stashed away, unknown to the public for almost 50 years, and uncovered by Professor of American Literature and Culture, Will Kaufman, at an almost unbelievably fitting moment in American history. Beach Haven Ain't My Home is a protest song about a Brooklyn apartment complex whose developer, Woody's landlord, because Woody lived there, accepted tens of millions of dollars in federal housing aid and then systematically denied leases to African Americans. Woody was so peeved that his lyrics explicitly refer to this landlord by name. And by the way, that name would go on to become one of the most uttered names in modern American history. It's a name that stands out more prominently in Woody's alternative title for this song. I'm Bobby Waller, and this is my take on the real-life story behind Woody Guthrie's Beach Haven Ain't My Home, a.k.a. Old Man Trump. Woody Guthrie wondered if his soon-to-be landlord was even on the premises. He'd heard Trump owns thousands of apartments spread across two boroughs, so maybe he was in transit from one of his other locations. Or maybe we were waiting on a courier. The receptionist hadn't explained, except to direct Woody to the couch and say, we're waiting on a signature. The latest issue of Life was on the end table. Not the kind of publication Woody usually read. Too many cover stories about movie stars, sports heroes, and professional politicians. Rich sons of bitches who didn't need the publicity. But this cover was different. An African woman in tribal garb who the text suggested was from the Nile. Her smile seemed relaxed and genuine. The shot, taken from slightly below her eye level, looking up to her, made her seem all the more strong and confident. Woody picked up the magazine. What the heck? Maybe this issue would have something real in it. There was an article on Nazis hiding out in Colombia, a review of the new Cyrano de Bergerac movie, and a piece called Color Line Shifts in the Navy. About damn time, thought Woody. Americans of every color had fought in World War II, and it was high time the U.S. government realized a person's military merit has nothing to do with the color of their skin. 
Woody knew this because he'd been there, as a volunteer no less. Despite his myriad criticisms of the U.S. federal government, he'd been unflinchingly clear that it was the lesser of two evils compared to the fascist regimes of Hitler and Mussolini. For that reason, Woody hadn't waited for his draft notice. He signed up as a merchant marine serving on ships that transported soldiers to the Battle of the Atlantic. His last ship, the Sea Porpoise, was torpedoed by a German submarine off Utah Beach while transporting U.S. troops for the D-Day invasion. Because he had already been a radio personality before the war, he petitioned the Army to let him serve as an entertainer in the USO. They rejected him, but he still performed for the troops, frequently defying orders by playing for and with African-American GIs. This is not to say that Woody had been born woke. His father, Charles, had an affiliation with the KKK back in Oklahoma and was rumored to have attended the infamous lynching of Laura and L.D. Nelson in 1911, the year before Woody was born. In his youth, Woody himself drew racist cartoons and wrote bluntly racist lyrics that he apparently thought were funny. As a regular performer on Pasadena's KFVD in the late 1930s, he sang old minstrel songs with the most egregious of racial slurs right there in the title. This ended when an African-American listener took the time to express his disapproval in a letter that explained the long and hurtful history of that term and questioned the intelligence of anyone who would use it on the radio. And here's where Woody's true character shined through. Instead of denying his racism, Instead of pretending that obviously pejorative term was merely descriptive, instead of attacking his critic for being too sensitive, he took heed. He apologized on the air the next night and vowed to change his repertoire and his vocabulary forever. But that wasn't all that changed. So did his career. Woody had long written songs that highlighted the plight of Dust Bowl refugees like himself. Songs like Do Re Mi, which warned fellow economic refugees that moving to California, as he had done, might not solve all their problems. California is a garden of Eden, a paradise to live in or see. But believe it or not, you won't find it so hot if you ain't got the Do Re Mi. Woody had been setting himself up as a champion of the underdog, and his experience as a bona fide Okie was a perfect pedigree. Okies really did know what it was like to be disenfranchised and dehumanized. But that letter from that insistently self-respecting African-American listener made him realize something. He couldn't be America's everyman if he didn't sing for everyone in America. By the mid-1940s, Woody was defying social norms by performing and recording with black artists like blues harpist Sonny Terry, 
singer-guitarist Josh White. Don't you want a silver medal, Billy boy, Billy boy? Don't you want a silver medal, charming Billy? No desire do I feel to defend Republic Steel. He's a young boy and cannot leave his mother. And most famously with Lead Belt. You shall be free. singing. You shall be free. Taking a collection. You shall be free. When the good Lord set you free. He also wrote songs about injustices suffered by African Americans, like the Ferguson Brothers killing about two unarmed brothers who were shot to death by a Long Island patrolman for demanding service at a whites-only coffee stand. Here it is being performed by that Guthrie scholar I told you about earlier, Will Kaufman. This morning, two hearses rolled out towards the graveyard. One hearse had Alfonso, the other took Charles. There was also the blinding of Isaac Woodward about a freshly discharged U.S. Army sergeant still in his uniform who was arrested for requesting a bathroom stop from a Greyhound bus driver and subsequently tortured and blinded by the police. Again, sung by Kaufman. I thought I'd fought on those islands to get rid of all their kind But I can see the fight much plainer now that I am blind. And Woody did more than just write and sing for the cause of racial equality. He actually put his body in harm's way. Those who wanted his outspoken voice still threatened violence if Robeson sang. singer and civil rights activist Paul Robeson. In 1949, Robeson was so controversial that his concert in Peekskill, New York spawned a riot. Local police and the Ku Klux Klan unofficially joined forces to terrorize concert goers with brutal physical assaults, sometimes dragging them out of their cars and beating them with clubs until they needed hospitalization. Heads were bashed in, eyes were cut by flying glass, Cars were overturned and the people in them dragged out and beat. While they shouted anti-Negro and anti-Semitic epithets and boasted that they would finish Hitler's job. Woody not only shared the bill with Robeson that night, he also stood right there on the front lines boldly defying the assailants. In short, Woody had earned the right to feel it was about damn time for the Navy to shift its color line. He hadn't been born woke, but he'd listened to African-American friends, fans, and critics when they pointed out his racism, and he'd made significant adjustments in the way he wrote, talked, and thought. He had experienced on an individual level what it seemed like the whole country might be about to experience on a national level. Here you go, Mr... The receptionist looked at the lease to jog her memory. Mr. Guthrie. The anonymity of the situation made Woody realize just how many tenants this Trump guy must have. Thank you, he said, checking to confirm that the document had really been signed. 
Have a Merry Christmas, she said, her back already turned as she walked back to her desk. She clearly had no intention of prolonging the conversation, and that was fine with Woody. You too, he said, half-heartedly, on his way out the door. These transactions were always so awkward. The business of who has to wait for who always underscored power differences that made Woody uncomfortable. Still, you gotta live somewhere, right? And Beach Haven seemed like as good a place as any. Just minutes away from Coney Island and an easy bus ride to Leadbelly's apartment where all the folkies were hanging out these days. Plus, it was built on grants from the Federal Housing Administration, and that's something Woody could stand behind. It had only been a few years since all those GIs returned from World War II, and a lot of them were having trouble finding decent, affordable housing. The FHA had responded to the housing shortage by financing the construction of new housing complexes, and Fred Trump was one of the many business moguls to step forward and accept that money. Woody never trusted landlords, especially not ones as rich as Trump, but as long as regular working-class people were getting decent homes in the deal, Woody figured it was okay. After all, he'd spent most of his adult life singing for labor unions and civil rights causes. He was all about voicing the needs of everyday people, and so of course he could stand behind housing equality. If that's what was really happening. It took Woody a while to realize something was off. According to some accounts, the big tip-off came suddenly, the day after Sonny Terry came to jam and Trump threatened Woody with eviction for inviting a black man onto the premises. Whether or not that's true, it is certainly true that Woody noticed Beach Haven had no black tenants. The federal government had given Fred Trump tens of millions of dollars to create housing equality, and he used it to create housing inequality. And here's how he did it. Although FHA policy officially eschewed race-based housing discrimination, it also included a loophole that allowed individual lessors to develop whatever internal leasing policies they believed would promote the well-being of their communities. According to Trump, that well-being was best served by keeping the races apart. Woody was pissed. He was pretty careful about where his money went, and now his biggest monthly payout was going to a profiteering segregationist. Legally bound by a two-year lease and not knowing what else to do, he set paper to pen and wrote some of the most bitter poems and songs of his life. Here he is in a home-recorded demo of 1952. I don't like the way my landlord's treating me. I don't like the way Mr. Trump is treating me. This is a verse from a song called I Don't Like the Way the World's a Treatin' Me. It's the only known audio recording of Woody singing about Fred Trump by name. I find myself wondering, why didn't Woody ever commit this to a regular album? Sure, this demo version's a little rough, but with some instrumentation and maybe a little lyrical retooling, this could be a pretty good song. Maybe Woody never intended to put it on a regular album. Maybe this was just a personal gripe. A lot of people hate their landlords, after all, and maybe Woody was just letting off a little steam. 
Maybe he never intended to air his grievances about Trump in a public way. But I don't think so. Because Woody rarely focused on the granular. He wanted to fix whole systems. Everything. Recall that the name of the song we just heard is I Don't Like the Way the World's Treating Me. It's about the world, not just Trump. Elsewhere in the song, he says he doesn't like the way Hoover, MacArthur, and Truman are treating him. The whole damn system's rotten, and Fred Trump's just part of it. Another reason I think it would be wrong to characterize Woody's writings on Trump as a petty personal vendetta is the time frame of the song we heard at the top of this episode. Be Woody wrote Beach Haven Ain't My Home in 1954, well over a year after his lease with Trump had ended. Petty personal gripes with landlords tend to ease once the legal relationship between lessor and lessee is over. So why was Woody still writing about Trump in 1954? Maybe because that's the year Trump made headlines as one of the prime subjects in the U.S. Banking Committee's investigation of real estate developers whose personal accounts experienced windfall gains after taking money from the FHA. Eisenhower himself publicly spoke of Trump as a particularly egregious profiteer. Woody may have written about Trump because he felt he had something to contribute to this national conversation. But of course, he never made that contribution, at least not in his lifetime. Woody Guthrie died in 1967 after a protracted fight against Huntington's disease. Beach Haven Ain't My Home and his other writings on Trump had long since been committed to storage. They'd be recovered by Guthrie scholar Will Kaufman in 2016, just as Fred Trump's son Donald was ramping up his campaign for the U.S. presidency. The discovery thrust Kaufman into the spotlight and spawned countless news stories, a TED Talk, and that recording by Ryan Harvey, Andy DeFranco, and Tom Morello that we've been hearing throughout this episode as well as several cover versions by lesser-known artists on YouTube. Imagine you wanted to write a piece of speculative historical fiction. You know, what if the Confederacy had won the Civil War? What if Gandhi had met Hitler? That kind of story. And now imagine you wanted it to be a meeting of two historical figures with highly recognizable last names that represent radically different stances on white racism in America. You couldn't do better than to pick the names Guthrie and Trump. The thing is... The meeting of those two minds, as improbable as it may seem, isn't fiction. It actually happened. And the timing could not have been more appropriate. 
The resurfacing of Beach Haven Ain't My Home just as Fred Trump's son was rising in the polls seemed too rich to be mere coincidence. It felt like providence, like a prophecy from one of America's long gone but still beloved visionaries. A warning from beyond the grave that America isn't done with institutional racism yet. And this name, Trump, it's something you better watch for. A well-educated black has a tremendous advantage over a well-educated white. You could have been born in Kenya and gone over to the United States and everybody wants to be a U.S. citizen. I'm asking for the vote of every single African-American citizen in this country. What do you have to lose? You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. You have no jobs. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Oh, look at my African-American over here. Tonight, panic and chaos in Charlottesville. A car plowing through counter-protesters. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. The last minutes of George Floyd's life, as witnesses desperately plead with cops to get off his neck. Bro, he has not moved, not one time. I'm tired of my black men and my black women being shot, being killed by the NYPD. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. Thanks for listening to Plucked, stories plucked straight from the history of folk and acoustic music. This episode included music used by the permission of my extremely cool friends, Bill Mylar of Mylarville.com, Tim Curtis Schatz of OneEyedRiley.com, David Waterman, whose music you can find at Facebook.com slash David Waterman slash videos, P.W. Fenton, host of On This Day in Blues History at Bluesland.net, who contributed a blues guitar piece by Ed Wright, and Sage Arias, whose music you can buy at orchestrium.bandcap.com and at halfpence-and-haypenny.bandcap.com slash releases. Hey, if you're a musician and you're willing to let me play your acoustic instrumentals on the show, I would love to hear from you. I'm always looking for originals or tunes from the public domain, stuff that I can legally use without having to pay a license fee because my budget is zero. Sorry about that. But I love working with other creative types, so if that works for you, contact me, Bobby Waller, at pluckpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is She's Easy to Dream About by John Emery. That's J-O-N-E-M-E-R-Y at johnemerymusic.com. This show incorporates a number of license-free sources for music and sound effects, as well as some licensed sources that I use according to my best understanding of fair use laws. For more information on these and all the sources used in this episode, please check out the show notes at pluckedpodcast.com. Plucked is now available on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and just about any other platform that traffics in fine podcasts. Special thanks to our webmaster, Linda Easton. I'm Bobby Waller. Thank you for listening to Plucked.